Hi, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to the Lineup Podcast. Yes, it's true. I am a new voice here. We are rebooting the Lineup Podcast, and I am very, very excited about that. I come from America's Most Haunted. We have a cool guy relationship with the Lineup, and with me always will be... Dr. Clarissa Cole. Happy to be here. And Dr. Clarissa Cole, what is your area of expertise? I am a forensic psychologist with the state of California, so my expertise is in studying the criminal mind. It's what I do all day, every day. So Dr. Clarissa is the essence of true crime, the literal essence. So I'm coming at this more from a paranormal standpoint. Of course, that's what America's Most Haunted is all about. And Clarissa will be covering the true crime aspect, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to alternate podcasts between primarily paranormal tales and primarily true crime tales. For today's episode, we're covering Bobby Mackey's Music World. For those of you who don't know Bobby Mackey's, in the small blue-collar town of Wilder, Kentucky, just south of Newport and across the mighty Ohio River from Cincinnati, sits one of the most fascinating establishments in the United States. Bobby Mackey's Music World, nestled along the east bank of the North Flowing, which is very unusual, Licking River, the iconic destination at 44 Licking Pike, has something for everyone. Classic country music, cold beer and hard liquor, a mechanical bull, cowboys and cowgirls, ghosts and demons, perhaps even a portal to hell. Like we said, something for everyone. (laughs) All right, so moving along, just a little more background on the building. The building's history is one of blood, murder, suicide, gangsters, gambling, showgirls, rumored Satanism, and colorful characters galore, each with a fascinating story to tell. The ground Mackey sits upon was contested by Native Americans for centuries. Access to the river and the fertile land it nourished was a privilege hard fought between the Cherokee and Shawnee tribes. White settlers arrived in the 1700s, and the area came to be known as Leech's Station after Major David Leech, who was given land for his service in the American Revolutionary War. The Wilder name dates to a railroad station built by the Louisville, Cincinnati, and Lexington Railway in the mid-1800s, named after a company executive. The railroad facilitated the spread of farming and manufacturing, and the region prospered and grew. Very significantly, a slaughterhouse was built on the site in the 1850s, where unaccountable thousands of animals were processed, untold gallons of blood drained along with the life force from their bodies. Before the EPA and government waste disposal regulations, All this material was simply funneled through a sluice dug from the building down to the river, which ran a very creepy red each time there was a dump from the slaughterhouse. The slaughterhouse shut down in the mid-1890s, but the land and water seemed to have developed an unquenchable thirst for blood. And here is the most famous story associated with Bobby Mackey's. In 1896, a lovely and vivacious young woman named Pearl Bryan, 22 and pregnant, was brutally murdered and decapitated near the site. Legend has it that the pair convicted of her murder, Bryan's boyfriend, Scott Jackson, and his accomplice, Alonzo Walling, threw her head into the sluice as a sacrifice to Satan. 
opening a portal to hell that now sits uneasily in the basement of Bobby Mackey's. Well, Clarissa, unfortunately, we know that key elements of that tale aren't true. That's right. I, you know, it's so interesting that that, uh, you know, tale has gotten spun over time when that's not exactly what happened. And it makes perfect sense what came to light, what did happen um, with Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling. Um, she, you know, Pearl Bryan, she was 22 and pregnant, but not married. And I believe that they were dental students, yes. Jackson, uh, Jackson and Alonso. So, you know, they had, they wanted to go forward and be successful young men. And, and I'm thinking that Pearl Bryan getting pregnant really didn't factor into S Scott Jackson's plans. And he wanted to do something about that or, or really just walk away. I think he wanted her to, to not have the child, but she wouldn't disappear. She wanted to have this child. She wanted to be with Jackson and she wouldn't go away. And he got together with his friend Alonzo Walling and said, hey, how do we fix this? Jackson then asked uh, Pearl Bryant to, to come and see him. When she did, uh, they were both there waiting for her and they took her out uh, to a remote spot in the country, in, in Wilder, Kentucky, as it turns out. And they tried to avoid all the toll roads so that nobody would see them with Pearl Bryant. So that would take them through, you know, right past Bobby Mackey's, the location where Bobby Mackey's is now, to an orchard that I think is only a couple miles away yes, from, from Bobby Yes, a few miles away, yes. And, and that is where they killed uh, Pearl Bryan, and they did decapitate her, and uh, the, the best guess on that one was that they wanted to avoid, uh, you know, any identification of Pearl Bryan, and um, her head was never recovered, but there there is no evidence that it was ever brought to this. It would have been a sluice at that time in Bobby Mackey's, or that there was any Satanism involved either. Absolutely, there there are no actual reports from the time, and the case was covered very very carefully by both the local media, Cincinnati area, Northern Kentucky area, and even by the New York Times. This was a big, sensational, national case. There was not one mention ever in any of the newspaper accounts of the rumors that have been associated with the place. A, no affiliation with that particular building. And actually, there probably was no building there other than perhaps the derelict slaughterhouse at that time. We're talking the late 1800s. And mm -hmm. so... The only real connection we've been able to figure out between the place was the road, Licking Pike, actually, that they took did go by this property. But that really does seem to be the only connection. And again, no reports from that time of any satanic worship in that area, certainly not at that well and there's no reason to think that her head uh, was tossed there. In fact, it would have been doubling back the other way. They went past what is now Bobby Mackey's on the way there. I'm not sure they went back. In fact, I don't think they did go back the exact same way uh, because the driver became very suspicious, saw what was going on as it happened, and he hightailed it out of there. He wanted nothing to do with that nonsense when he saw what was going on. At the well, or what, orchard. What about that rumor, though? There was that rumor, wasn't there, at the end that um, that when they were, you know, being tried for this crime and they were sentenced to hang for it, uh, what, that they said something about the ritual or something before they were put to death? Is that is that true? 
Exactly. That is exactly what the tale and the legend says. And you know what? It's not true. So <laughs> what happened was um, there is no report whatsoever. And again, this, this was something, this was a trial and a hanging that was covered very carefully, very closely by many, many, many different outlets. Not one of them reported that there was a curse made by Walling or Jackson. None of them reported any satanic affiliation in any way, not even rumors, with either of them. They were just kind of bad guys. At least Scott Jackson was. How he talked Wally, he must have been a charismatic figure. How he talked his roommate, who had no connection to the case whatsoever, no reason to help other than he was asked. Uh, and uh, he must have been a charismatic guy. But no, there were no last words. There was no cursing the people. There was nothing about we will come back. None of that was said at all. There not one report said any of that. So these guys were just bad guys. As far as anyone knows, they were not Satan worshipers. This was just a case of a very, very, very selfish young man not wanting to be burdened uh, <laughs> with a wife and child. And uh, he was that was not what he was looking for. He was a user. He was a, manip a manipulator. He had had issues. He had had to leave home on the East Coast to go to Indiana, which at that point was perceived as a rather uh, a, a rural move. And he had to go there because his mother was there in Indiana. And uh, that's where he met had met Pearl. Also, when they came, when they brought her uh, and told her to come to Cincinnati, I, I don't think that originally the idea was to kill her. The idea was to induce an abortion. And he gave her cocaine that's right, he and she fed did her not cocaine. abort. She did not abort. Wow. He was just a bad guy. And you're right, as far as why did he cut off her head, well, it was purely a matter of identification. This is prior to mm -hmm. DNA. It was, even, it was just at the borderline of fingerprinting, just when it was getting started. But it was not going to be you know, applicable uh, in, in that case. So you know what's you know what's interesting about her identification, just kind of as a side note. Um, back in the day, uh, shoes and eyeglasses—it was very common to put serial numbers on them when they were a, a good you know a good pair of eyeglasses, good player, pair of shoes. Uh, the Bobby Franks case is a case where uh, the, they did everything to avoid detection, but it was actually a pair of eyeglasses that got them caught. And in Pearl Bryan's case, wasn't it her shoes? Yes, it was, and you're exactly right because still at that point. Uh, even if even if clothing was manufactured, it was tailored to the individual, and it was identified with that individual. So we're we're still in the pre-mass production, real mass production age for clothing, anyway. And it was tailored to the individual, especially if that individual uh, had a little bit of money. And she was coming from a rather well-off family. I'm sure they didn't have tons of money for individuals because it was a very large family. But uh, her father did quite well, and she was uh, brought up quite well, and I'm sure she was a self-possessed young woman who just was not going to take no for an answer from this young man. Mm -hmm. Right, and I mean, he seemed like an up-and-comer, too, you know, going to dental school and, and trying to better himself, so it, he, it's no surprise that she may have been attracted to him. That makes he, sense. He was a charismatic figure, as we have said. He was a big, big talker, and yeah, he appeared to be on the rise. He was in dental school. There, there weren't a ton of dentists back then. We're talking 1896. 
And so that was a pretty big deal. And yeah, he was going to school, uh, dental school in Cincinnati. And that's why he summoned her there from Greencastle, Indiana. In fact, Pearl was the youngest of 12 children born to a wealthy farming family in Greencastle. And Jackson was a charismatic figure who had narrowly escaped an embezzlement charge in New Jersey and come to Green Castle to visit his mother and half-sister and start anew. And start anew he did, but in a rather nefarious way, I would say. Yeah. I mean, so that's I, that's one whole uh, kind of legend, really. I, you know, it's, it's not true, per se, that the part about Pearl Bryan's head uh, being thrown into the sluice. So... I mean, that's one that is kind of debunked a bit. I, I mean, are there, there's other myths, though, about well, well, Bobby Mackey's, right? There are many, many tales that are told. And it's interesting in that most of the facts, not all, but most of the facts as they are told in these legends really don't seem to have objective basis in fact, or at least they're not supportable with evidence from the eras at hand. But that doesn't mean there aren't things going on. There are all kinds of things going on. And there's plenty of real crime, even murder, certainly violence, that are that is associated with the place and that is real and legitimate. But speaking of that hole, which is called the well, it's called a portal to hell, etc., 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 where ostensibly poor Pearl's head was tossed. Yes, the well brings up one of the sadder tales associated with Bobby Mackey's, that of handyman Carl Lawson. Why don't you tell us his tale, Clarissa? Well, Carl Lawson has a, a really long and, and storied history just with Bobby Mackey's and the, the land there. I guess he grew up in a house that actually sat on the far edge of the property of what is now the parking lot at, at Bobby Mackey's. And as a teen, he actually worked for other various clubs that were on the property. And when Mackey came in and, and, and bought the property, Carl offered his services and got hired on. He worked and lived at Bobby Mackey's. Uh, in, a, in a little apartment above the main club. But he was plagued with really strange dreams. Uh, one in particular, he said, told him to go down into the basement of Bobby Mackey's and dig, uh, which apparently Carl did. And he found this this hole, this well, this sluice. I mean, there, there's so many different stories as to what it is. But uh, Carl found this, and he said that when he dug that area up, that something kind of attached itself to him and that he was never the same after that. Uh, so this, you know, supernatural attachment, he, you know, at, at one point he actually had an exorcism done in 1991 to expel this uh, demon that he called uh, Charlie in the exorcism. But he unfortunately passed away in 2012. And some people think that it is due to what he experienced at Bobby Mackey's, that it never really left him. What is your analysis from a psychological point of view on the difference between attachment or simply believing that you have an attachment? Where can that lead? Well, that's the tough part with Carl Lawson because he was known to, to suffer from alcoholism and depression. 
And when somebody, you know, is drinking alcohol to self-medicate their depression, it, it, it seems like it's going to help, but it has this synergistic effect, which makes the depression worse. And people can actually suffer psychotic depressions where they have delusional beliefs. They may suffer hallucinations. And when you've been alcoholic for a very long time, in severe cases, you can develop what something that's called Korsakoff's dementia, which is from too much alcohol. And that has not only lasting memory deficits, but, you know, massive depression and other psychiatric phenomena take place with Korsakoff's dementia. So without knowing Carl and, and being able to really evaluate that, uh, that would probably be one of the first things I'd think about, though, just given his history. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, Carl was not the only person who's been plagued by potentially evil spirits picked up at the club. Very famously, Ghost Adventures, Zach Baggins, Nick Groff, and Aaron Goodwin all experienced malevolent forces that seemed determined to leave a mark on their bodies and souls. Aaron's life was transformed when a dark entity attached itself to him at Mackey's in the very first episode of the show, leading to the realization that he couldn't leave a normal life. And he told us that in an episode of the original America's Most Haunted it was very, very touching and very pointed. He said, I know that I have a calling to pursue the paranormal. And it occurred to me then, that early on in the process, again, this was the first episode of the show after they got the deal based upon the very, very famous film, the documentary, the original Ghost Adventures show. So he told me he can't live a normal life. He didn't think that he it was right to be married. I mean, he got divorced and everything because he said, I feel my calling is to be open to this. Aaron very openly decided he was going to be open, as open as possible, and take on all comers, and he was going to live his life in that manner. What do you think the psychological aspect of that is? That I mean, that's incredible. It, it, it's an incredible choice to make because it really is a, a choice if you're going to let all of that into your life. And, and I hate to just, you know, say that it's patently negative. I don't think that that's fair. But I do think that a lot of these places that people investigate, at least, on, you know, on the shows that I've been exposed to, have what they consider to be some demonic or negative content. And I, I think that when you're exposing yourself to that openly, you know, wanting to expose yourself to that over and over and over again, it certainly has an effect on not just your mental health, but potentially your physical health. I, you know, there's a, a strange sort of statistic. I, I looked it up before the show just to be sure about it, Eric. And um, what I said to you before was actually incorrect. Um, if you are a correctional officer, out here in, uh, in actually it's across the country, but in California specifically, I'm not talking about a correctional officer that is someone that makes traffic stops. I'm talking about in the institution, 12 hour shifts every day. They have this statistic that after a correctional officer retires, his average length of life after retirement is 18 months. That is worse than the NFL. It is worse than, it is, it is the second highest mortality rate of any occupation, and 18 months is the average length that they live after getting out of this really negative, really stressful environment. And, and I'd have to say that investigating things that may be potentially very negative, very dangerous, wouldn't that have the same effect? It makes me wonder. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's very hard, and, and I think what's interesting about us, you and I, working together is 
is a really gray area there, or, or you can look at it as an intersection between what is potentially at least paranormal mm -hmm. and what is psychological. And I'm not convinced that the paranormal world, that paranormal activity, which more or less I do believe is something that is real, something mm -hmm. that exists in the real world, but I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that it isn't something that is actually generated by human minds. That doesn't mean it isn't real, but I'm not sure that there's necessarily something there apart from our experience, human experience of it, which in a sense would make sense since the more we learn about our interaction, our sensory interaction with this world, what we call the real world, is the more we learn, the more open to interpretation by the brain it is. Many people say there's no such thing as the real world out there. It's all about how our brain interprets this sensory data. And that I could not agree with you more. I, I mean, I wonder about that all the time, too, with, you know, patients that I've had. And is it necessarily a hallucination? Is it real if they believe it to be real? I, I mean, I've had patients that have had, you know, really complex delusional systems for over 20 years of their life. And that world, that reality has to be more real to them than what the rest of us are experiencing because it's something that they've built up and absolutely believe in with every fiber of their being. And, and I'm, who's to say that we can't manifest that outside of our physical bodies? I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think that it's very interesting that there's an intersection there. Absolutely. All right, let's move along. Another very, very famous person, famously associated with Bobby Mackey's, besides Bobby Mackey himself, by the way, who, who we should mention, with his very famous song, Johanna, which is based mm -hmm. on another tale. Bobby Mackey is, uh, was a huge regional star down in northern Kentucky, southern Ohio, when he bought Bobby Mackey's way back in 1978. And he's been performing almost every weekend there ever since, making it truly a magical place. He is a very talented figure. For many, 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 many years, he did not want to get involved. He just didn't even want to acknowledge the paranormal or the potential paranormal activity there. But in recent years, interestingly, he has come to acknowledge that, very similar to me, it's going on and people are experiencing it. The volume, the statistics are just too high, but he hasn't experienced it. All right, we mentioned Johanna. That's kind of the other most famous tale beyond Pearl Bryant's. Why don't you give us the the background on the Johanna tale, which became Bobby Mackey's most famous song and is considered one of the most famous spirits in the building. You know, I do love the Johanna story because I am a theater buff and it is a Romeo and Juliet story if I've ever heard one. It really is. Um, Johanna was supposedly a dancer when back during the mob days of the club. Um, and she was a, a very famous dancer, but her dad... Um, I had some part in running the club and she fell in love with this man named Robert Randall, who was a singer, a crooner and, and who wouldn't fall for that. Uh, she fell for Robert Randall and they wanted to be together. But her father, who had, you know, ownership in this club, absolutely forbid it. You cannot be together. He did not want her to be with Robert Randall. Well, she desperately wanted to be with him and they would not stay away from each other. So her father 
had Robert Randall killed. And Johanna was so grief-stricken by this that she attempted to poison her father and then poisoned herself in the dressing room, which was downstairs in, in the basement of Bobby Mackey's, and succumbed to the poison. So that is that in a nutshell, that is supposedly what happened with Johanna and Robert Randall. I am personally convinced that there is a spirit in that building who identifies herself anyway as Johanna. Interestingly, though, there doesn't seem to be a historical basis. So the question comes up again. Have we collectively, the paranormal community, those who are there touring or investigating, have we actually conjured up this character? Have we conjured, have we created this spirit or perhaps drawn this spirit to that building, which otherwise would not be the case because of our collective will for her to exist based on the story? And that, and that makes sense when you look at just the history of the, the location. There weren't reports that I'm aware of before Bobby Mackey set up shop of it being a terribly haunted location. It, it, not that it wasn't. It very well may have been. But I do think that every personality that moves into a location brings some of themselves, you know, to bear on the environment. So how much of that is going on at this location? Either way, there's something there. Just what are, what are the origins of that? I don't know. But I have a number of experiences in the building myself. So let me relate those very briefly as we near the end of our very first podcast together for the lineup. Very exciting. We met bar manager Matt Coates in the building. And this is a couple of years ago when we were working on when Teresa Argie and I were researching and writing the America's Most Haunted book. So I must, of course, give Teresa credit for her input. We met Matt. Very large fellow, he's about 6'1", 300 pounds, very, very sturdy 300 pounds. He is, that's a muscular 300 pounds. He's a big guy. He would be very difficult to push around, to pick up, to toss around. One time, Matt, who was absolutely a skeptic, had never had experiences in the building, even though he's been around for 10 years or more. But one evening, he was down in the basement. He was just taking down the bottles and just doing some work, just some basic maintenance work for the nightclub itself, he was literally picked up and flung backward through the air across the basement like a rag doll. He landed flat against the back wall. It completely and utterly changed his perspective, and it changed his view of the paranormal. And I'll tell you, he is not the first one to have had that kind of intense paranormal experience, allegedly paranormal, at Bobby Mackey. So the tour that we were on, Teresa and I, we, we met up with uh, some friends we'd met earlier that day. Mike is the guy, and interestingly, Mike has had an experience. He had also been absolute skeptic, never thought anything about the paranormal. He had a near-death experience several years ago. When he came out of that near-death experience, he saw dead people. What? Everywhere. He, he became extremely sensitive. He became a medium. And that's actually a fairly common story that you hear. When people come back from near-death experiences, very traumatic medical experiences, 
and, and I'm not even talking about when they're actually declared dead, uh, the, the classic near death, but just relatively near death. When people come back, come out of comas and whatnot, it is not unusual that they report having absolute, ubiquitous, ongoing paranormal experiences, interaction with the dead, with spirits. They see them. They see them everywhere. They talk to them. And it could be extremely frightening. And it was for Mike, who's also a big guy himself. And he was in the military and whatnot. He said it was so weird to come out of this and to feel so small and so reduced by this. He's come to terms with it more or less, but he was actually debating. He was he was not sure that he was going to go into Bobby Mackey's in the first place. But he did. He was hanging out in front of the building. That's when we first met him earlier in that day. And he finally said, okay, I'll go in. So he, we took the tour that night with him. Well, he had an amazingly traumatic experience. There's a room down there called the face room. And that's just because there's all kinds of stuff on the wall that due to pareidolia looks like faces. They aren't faces. It's just stuff on the wall. It's just concrete. Great word. Pareidolia. It's just concrete, yes, it. stucco, and whatnot. But he entered that room, and none of the rest of us on the tour heard anything. He started hearing shrieking, screaming. It, his brain felt like it was going to explode. He went burning out of that little room. He had to duck down. So he can't even stand up straight. Out of that room, he had that experience while we were there, screaming, screaming. When he got out of the room... It basically went away, but he could still hear it as though it existed in the real world. So that was an extraordinarily vivid experience. And my conclusion personally about Bobby Mackey's is, despite the fact that several, a few, of the most told tales associated with the building do not appear to have a historical basis, namely Johanna Pearl Bryan in particular, despite that fact, there seems to be all kinds of activity. There's just too high a volume activity to say that there's nothing going on there. So the question is, are, is that activity actually associated with the land, with the building? Does it go all the way back to Native American times? Does it go back, harken back to the gangster days of the 30s, 40s, 50s? There was illicit gambling in there besides it being a nightclub, really high-end, exciting, glamorous, even, nightclub, nightclub. So is it actually associated with the building? Or is it something that people are bringing in there or even literally conjuring there? The fact that the building became known as paranormal. So is it a question of you see what you expect to see? What do you think about that, Clarissa? I think that's definitely so. I think that your expectations and, you know, going into, you know, an environment, that's what you're going to experience. I, I know working in some of the places that I've been in, you know, uh, San Quentin being one of them, one of the oldest prisons in California, a lot of people expect to be terrified and expect to experience things. And for the most part, they do. I expected to have a perfect time there. You know, there, it was not without its traumas, believe me, but I didn't really experience a whole lot, and I, I made it a lot longer than the average employee did at the time. So I think your attitude going in is part of it. And your openness. Yes, for sure. 
to the experience. I was not. I was not open to experiencing that. I was open to experiencing everything else that goes along with the prison, but not that. And I think when I was in Bobby Mackey's, I thought I had reopened myself, but I don't think I really did. I think I opened the lid a little bit, but I was still not willing to be as open and to receive unabated this flow like I did when I was much younger. And I think mm -hmm. even though I would like to think that that's something that I could do and would want to do, I don't know if at this point in my life I'm capable of fully opening myself up again. Well, thank you, Clarissa. What a fascinating first project we had. Bobby Mackey's Music World, the famous haunted honky-tonk. Thank you so much for your input. I'm really looking forward to our next one, which will be true crime oriented. The Lineup Podcast is a joint production of The Lineup and America's Most Haunted. Be sure to check out The Lineup's website at www.the-line-up.com. Interestingly, America's Most Haunted is also www.americas-most-haunted.com. Also, our music is provided by Absofacto. Listen in at absofacto.com. A-B-S-O-F-A-C-T-O.com. Have a great one, everybody. 